Hello, welcome to Her Dark Materials. I'm Faye. Hi. And I'm Rachel. Hello. This is a podcast where we're reading through and discussing Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials novels, a chapter at a time, spoiler free. In this episode, we're talking about chapter four, The Alethiometer. Good. What have you been doing? Oh gosh. Since last time we recorded, I have been a little bit knackered, really, I think. Mm. That seems to be my perpetual state. I had like an issue with my laptop last week when we were supposed to be recording and then like spent my life at the Microsoft store trying to get it fixed and then kind of lost my week that I was supposed to be spending making stuff. But I'm just still procrastinating away from making all the things I need to make for Dragon Meat next week, which is like... Ah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am also really tired. I was thinking earlier, I was like, what am I going to say on the podcast uh, about how I'm feeling and what I've been doing? And I just feel like I'm such a negative Nancy because I think all I've said so far on this podcast is, I'm tired, but I'm so tired. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's just being a grown-up. Maybe this is maybe mm. this is life now, Faye. <laughs> maybe. Fucking hell. I... I think as well because of the change in season and it's it's super cold here in the UK now and we've got like super short days and it's only going to get worse until like January, February yeah. time. Uh, getting through that is always quite a slog for me. I always get a little bit down and a little bit tired and a little bit ill around this yeah. time. I struggle to get enough vitamin D as it is oh, same. because I'm such a hermit and I never yeah. leave the house and then like you factor in that you don't even get any daylight through your windows for half the day. Yeah, it's, yeah. It gets a bit sad. But... Yeah. I did do nice things, like we put up the Christmas decorations in my flat. We did, yeah. that was fun. Yeah, it was played the end of a scary video game that we was did. mildly disappointing. Yeah, we did. And I went to see McFly. Yay! Yeah, McFly. you're queen of the gigs. That's I, why you go to like a million gigs. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, I've just always done that since I was a kid and I've just not grown out of it yet, so... Always going to gigs. To I feel like this time of year as well. There's a lot. There's always a lot of gigs in like the run up to Christmas, and then it calms down early next year. It'll calm down, and then like in the summer, it'll pick up again. But yeah, I went to see McFly, and they did they did like a one off show at the O2 because they've not been around for a few years now. And I've loved them since I was like twelve, and I've seen them probably about thirty times altogether. Nice. So <laughs> I, I loved it so much. It it was great. I obviously cried. Because that's what I do now. Just cry at everything. <laughs> Cried at Shit's Creek earlier. Brilliant. Well, I mean, why wouldn't you? It's a very emotional TV show. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I've been I've been good. I've just been tired. I feel like that's yeah, my tired. That probably for my contributes life. to the ease of crying as well. Yeah. Just generally. <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. super pissed off. I think I told you this when I went to McFly. I didn't even drink. And I woke up the next day feeling hungover and I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, you did an activity in the evening. You deserve the pain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I got up and went to work and I was like, why do I feel like shit? I literally just went out. I usually just go home straight after work, but this time I went out and now I feel shit. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks being an adult. Love it. On that topic, what would your demon have been this oh, week? <laughs> do you know, it's funny. Cause Perpetual was... sloth? Or... <laughs> I wanted to choose something different because I did sloth last week or mm. the other week and I I was like oh I've kind of been definitely been tired like I said but I've been like excitable at the things that I've needed to be excitable for so obviously I was like super excited to see McFly mm-hmm. um I feel like I've been a little bit chirpier um so I was like what is a breed of dog that is like super tired and chill but gets excited at things a greyhound yeah I, I looked at greyhound and I looked at bulldog and I was oh. like I'm gonna go for bulldog this time around because they're super sleepy and chill but like if you want to like play with them they're like up for it and I feel like that's what I've been like this week nice what about you oh gosh I'm feeling winter approaching and there's that like sense of franticness that comes with like Christmas is around the corner Jesus Christ Mm -hmm. I mean literally it's his birthday (laughs) (laughs) um and I'm starting to feel that sense of like frantic anticipation of like the year's finishing and what have you done mm-hmm. but that makes me think of like maybe like something that would be like collecting stuff and trying to get trying to be busy because hibernation is coming but also just getting more and more sleepy as the days go on mm-hmm. and as the days get shorter what hibernates 
Uh, a bear? I guess some kind of a bear. When you said when you said something that collects something, it made me think of a squirrel. Oh, they hibernate too. Yeah, yeah, I feel like maybe a squirrel because they're a little bit more frantic and busy. Yeah. And also, you know, if you see the squirrels in Peckham Park, sometimes they are. I mean, I'm quite easily irritated at the moment, and so are they. So maybe that's it. I'm a Peckham Park squirrel. <laughs> Did I tell you about that time I saw a squirrel in Peckham Park fall out of a tree. No, it was. Did it look really embarrassed? Yeah. <laughs> It kind of like looked around and saw me and Liam looking at it, and it was like, <laughs> just like ran back you up the saw tree. Nothing. <laughs> oh, it was brilliant. great. Did I tell you about the time? Isn't it didn't even happen to me, but it stuck in my memory. My housemate Sarah was walking past the park, and she saw a whole bunch of crows gathered around a dead crow having like a crow f- funeral, like oh a weird God. ceremonial crow funeral. And they like saw her watching and like walked off. <laughs> nothing <laughs> to see like, here. It's a kind of strange crow cult occurring in the park. <laughs> That's interesting. I wonder if that's... Um, I know nothing about crows. I wonder if that's a thing that they do. Maybe. Maybe they'd just like, check it out and be like, what happened to him so we can make sure it doesn't happen to us. <laughs> We've had some emails. Email time! Yay, emails. We love emails. So please email us. We are her.materialspod at gmail.com and we get super excited when we get an email super excited so please email us um so we had one from laurel hi laurel hi uh she emailed to tell us about the lantern slides apparently they are vignettes that were added to the end of uh, each of the books um so the omnibus version which came out probably like years ago now but it it has all the books in one book and do you know what I nearly bought when I was looking for my versions I nearly bought that one but I was like I didn't want the book to be like too big when I was looking through it you know to write notes and stuff so I didn't but I kind of wish I did know but apparently yeah there are stories that don't fit into the main story of the books so Philip Pullman I think from what Laurel said he wasn't planning really to do anything with them but then he decided to put them in that version of the book Bonus content. Yeah, exactly. And she was saying that they're like super sweet and one of them will make us cry. I haven't read them because they're quite hard to track down. Yeah, I had a look to see if I could find them as like a collection of short stories collected on their own. Yeah. It's tricky. I might just have to treat myself to an omnibus edition. Yeah, because I'd really like to to read them. I saw some posts on Reddit that there's some quotes from them, but not the whole um, stories. But I thought, obviously, we've both not read them. Um, and they're full of spoilers, uh, clearly. But I thought it'd be nice for us to maybe... We could always end up doing some bonus episodes on them yeah. if we get our hands on them. When the TV show's done for yeah. the season and we're, like, desperate, itching to do a few more episodes, we'll definitely try and hunt them down. Yeah, totally. But that was a really nice email, so thank you, Laurel, for telling us about that. Yeah, thank you, Laurel. Uh, we also had another email entitled Hairgate. From someone called Sophie, who I met at Comic-Con. She says that she was dressed as Adora, and I love She-Ra. I'm amazed I didn't log her in my brain at the time, but I was also very frantic at Comic-Con. And also, Andre tweeted us about this same topic as well, and it is Hairgate. 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 Mrs. Coulter's hair, and how it's different in our copies. Uh, We also did a little cursory Google immediately after we discovered Hairgate. Mm -hmm, We did. And uh, the results of... The culmination of this information given to us by <laughs> others and by Google is um, we think it's from Philip Pullman finding out about Nicole Kidman being cast in the film and her the choice of her being blonde and kind of being like, yeah, that makes sense. I like that. And in an interview, he said like, oh, I kind of wish I'd written her that way in the first place. And so they changed it after the Golden Compass film. Mm-hmm. They changed all publications after that because Pullman was like, yeah, I think I prefer that. Honestly. Which... I do not get as I a was thing. shooketh when yeah. that, because I think I remember saying in the episode where we where we first found out about Hergate, you I think you said, Oh, maybe he saw Nicole Kidman and liked uh, the portrayal and, and the hair colour and changed it and I was like, No, he wouldn't have done Surely that. Not. No. I can't believe that's what like how I would love to know more, just like Also like being that passionate yeah. about that interpretation. 
that so many people hated being that passionate about it that you're like yeah change all future publications change of my books. books yeah change the books like it's a lot of effort and some poor like intern <laughs> had to go through all the books well I imagine they just went like search and replace right <laughs> no but in my head some poor intern had to go through all of with the with a books. little um, <laughs> one of those like tipex pens that looks like a mouse <laughs> just tipexing yes, out every single book ever. writing it in by hand <laughs> But yeah, I was really, really shocked to find that out. Uh, I think it's such a strange move. Mm. Even if you thought it was better, you could just say in retrospect, oh shit, I should have done that. But Don't even change the so, books. like, it's just her hair colour. Yeah. Like, I realise I'm scandalised by the whole thing because apparently I'm so passionate about her hair colour. But imagine being the writer and being that intense about it that you change all the copies. Yeah. It's mad. Oh. Also, does hair dye exist in, in Lyra's world? Oh, good question. Like, I also can't think of like later in the other books if he'd already kind of made that decision for himself, mm. made her blonde. We'll have to keep an eye out like yeah. in the future books to see. Because Nicole Kidman was definitely not a natural blonde in that film. Mm. She was bottle blonde for sure. Mm-hmm. So who knows? Last chapter, we learned more about the Oxford that Lyra lives in. The gobblers are stealing children. And they might have taken Lyra's BFF, Roger. Roger! (laughs) We met Mrs. Coulter and a golden monkey demon for the first time and learned that she's somehow involved in snatching the kids. In this chapter, Lyra meets Mrs. Coulter and becomes immediately obsessed with her. Mm -hmm. The master tells Lyra it's time for her to leave Jordan College, so she goes to live with Mrs. Coulter, who she's known for literally a day. The master gives Lyra the alethiometer and tells her to keep it secret, keep it safe, especially from Mrs. Coulter. Okay, let's launch into this. Mm-hmm. So we start, and we're still in the master's lodgings where we left off last time. Um, Mrs. Coulter is trying... I suppose she's trying to get into like Lyra's good books. Mm-hmm. She's like, "Oh, you you need to help me because I I don't know like how to eat with these people and like use the knives and forks how they're supposed yeah. to be or what to use." And Lyra just eats it up. She's like, "Oh, I'll help you." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She um she's obviously good at ingratiating herself with children. Yeah. Which yeah. we've learned from the last chapter with poor little Tony. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. um there's going to be a lot of her being very good at buttering people up basically yeah definitely good we find out that lyra really hates the female scholars she hates them hang on let me find this quote she asks mrs coulter are you a female scholar she regarded female scholars with a proper jordan disdain there were such people but poor things they could never be taken more seriously than animals dressed up and acting a play this is like a perfect example of like the shitty patriarchal toxicity leeching into poor little Lyra. Absolutely. She's grown up around these men, these old white men mm-hmm. that like have these really hor- like really misogynistic opinions about women and their ability to like thrive in academia and poor Lyra's just that's all she's ever known. Yeah. And so she's just got this horrible learned misogyny. <sighs> oh Lyra. You're yeah. going to see so many things and you're going to learn so much Lyra. So thank fuck for that oh, because God. if you stayed at Jordan. Imagine if imagine growing up with that as your worldview. It's kind of shocking. I, when I read it, I was like, Jesus. It shows how far she has to grow. Yeah. For sure. It is one of those things, isn't it, where, like you said, if you grow up around it, then that is all you know. She doesn't know that anything different. Mm. She's probably, actually, apart from, think about the people that work in the college, like the servants and the people that work in the kitchen she's probably met very little women in her life and the women that she have met have been in either they're the female scholars that the male scholars view with this disdain Mm -hmm. or they're servants who she is societally bred essentially to think are lesser than her anyway yeah so she's probably regarding most of the serving classes as less than her because she knows that she's from some kind of nobility anyway yeah definitely so basically viewing women and servants as less than is like part of her day-to-day Great. <laughs> well so, so much growing to do, Lyra. <laughs> yeah, Thanks. absolutely. God, you're going to grow. <laughs> yeah. 
um, we found out that Mrs. Coulter's not a scholar, uh, but she's a member of Dame Hannah's college, and Dame Hannah is one of the other scholars that's there. I think we, we met her last chapter. Yeah. Lyra is so taken with Mrs. Coulter that she just immediately tells her everything about her life. Yeah, Mrs. Coulter's like, how long have you lived here? And Lyra's like, here are all of my adventures laid out in chronological order. How cool do you think I am? Please love me. Please yeah. love me. You're so cool. This, like. <laughs> this made me think about last chapter when we were discussing this, when the kids in the basement have that same, she has that same kind of effect mm. on them. And it made me wonder, I think I mentioned, does she have some kind of actual magical property about her? And I think that the way that we have seen her so far that could be a viable thing. Yeah. That she actually has some kind of magical attribute that draws people to her, especially kids. Yeah. She's just particularly good at getting this trust like immediately yeah. from them. It kind of makes me a bit jealous. Like that kind of attribute can be very helpful and I don't have it and I'd love to have that charm about you that, mm. that kind of draws people to you, but then use it for good. <laughs> so it's a rare quality, I guess. For us, who feel so socially anxious anyway. <laughs> yeah, help us. Uh, we move on to them having dinner. Uh, Mrs. Coulter admires Lyra's lack of fear of danger, I think. So having that conversation. Yeah. And she says, oh, so uh, I can't remember the exact word. In- Lyra's literally just told her about swapping the coins over in the skulls and being like, and oh my God, they were ghosts, but I knew what they wanted. So I put the coins back, otherwise they'd kill me. And Mrs. Coulter is just like, oh. So you're not afraid of danger then, she Mm. says admiringly. Mm -hmm. So I think she's very good at, you know, paying the right compliments to the right people to get on their good side. Yeah, she knows that Lyra would love that compliment. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd not thought of that, actually. The ladies withdrew for coffee. Yes. After dinner. Lyra ignores everybody but Mrs. Coulter. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, I, I said um, she's ignoring... the. They make a note of saying that she's ignoring the librarian on the, on the other side. Yeah. I was like, poor librarian. But also she's like, well, with most of the scholars, she's got like a bit of a rivalry going on with them anyway as well. Because yeah. he's the one that said that she couldn't learn anything. Yeah, that's true. So it's like, screw you, librarian, I'm talking to Mrs. Coulter. <laughs> I don't want to talk to you today. Also, Mrs. Coulter asks if she's going to go to school. Lyra's like, oh, I don't know, I'll probably stay at the college and just get taught by the scholars when they've got time. And one of the other scholars says, oh, does your uncle Lord Azriel have plans mm-hmm. for you? Mm-hmm. And Mrs. Coulter's like, oh, I remember him telling me. Yeah. At which point, the two female scholars sat up very slightly, though their demons, either well-behaved or torpid, did no more than flick their eyes at each other. Mm. There's something going on there yeah. that Lyra might not pick up on, but... Mrs. Coulter's mentioned that she knows Lord Asriel and it's made the people next to her feel intrigued, uncomfortable. We don't know. It's interesting. Clearly something happened in there that maybe people know about that we don't know about just yet. Yeah. Also, I'd never heard the word torpid before and apparently it just means like inactive from drowsiness or lack of energy. Oh, yeah, I'd never heard that word before Mm. either. Mrs. Coulter says that apparently her and Asriel met at the Arctic Institute the meeting that they had is partly why she's at the mm-hmm. college today. Um, and Lyra asks if she's an explorer and finds out that Mrs. Coulter's been to the North several times. And then that's just it for Lyra. She's like, yeah. oh my God, yes, I am in 100%. Also like classic Lyra being kind of rude. Lyra spent all of dinner talking about all her own stuff. Hasn't even thought to ask Mrs. Coulter what she does. <laughs> she's like, oh, you're not a scholar, but I don't care enough to ask what you do, do you? I'm going to yeah. tell you all about me first. And then it's not until after dinner that she's even bothered to ask what Mrs. Coulter does for a living. Yeah. That is quite a kid thing to Definitely. do, isn't it? Like, you don't think really of of anyone but yourself when you're a child. You don't think that adults have had any kind of experience that you would be interested in, so you just don't bother asking them. Mm. After dinner, the master asks Lyra to... Uh, wait in his study to have a conversation when everyone's left. Oh, before that, Ooh. they mentioned witches. Oh, do they? Yeah, uh-huh. it, Mrs. Coulter talks about, um, she tells her all about her experience. Yes. <clears throat> and she says that she has experience in negotiating with Lapland witches. And I think that's the first time we've heard mention of any witches. Okay. Potentially. Yeah. So I was like, oh, so witches are a thing in this uni- universe. That's really exciting. Love a witch. Yes. Lapland witch. Christmas witch. Christmas witch. <laughs> Maybe 
In their spare time, they're elves for Santa. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, and then there's another quote about the female scholars, which made me just think, oh, poor female scholars. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're talking about the Lapland witches. Like, Mrs. Coulter's talking about all her, like, adventures. It says, the two female scholars had nothing so exciting to tell and sat in silence until the men came in. Oh, poor yeah. female. I bet they do have exciting stories to tell, just not exciting it's, to Lyra, maybe. This is the thing. They've probably got exciting stuff to talk about in whatever their researching academically but being as they're not allowed to do half the fun stuff anyway Mm. they probably don't have the stuff that interests Lyra to be able to talk about but yeah like you said their master asks Lyra to stay behind when everyone else leaves it says cousin uh, cousins a servant shows Lyra into the master's study and then I remember that last chapter they've got beef yeah. And he leaves the door open so that he can see what she's doing. <laughs> yeah. But then she uses the door being open as a reason to just like lean and try and watch for Mrs. Coulter leaving as well because she's mm-hmm. so obsessed with her. So yeah. it's like Cousins has left the door open to keep an eye on Lyra and Lyra's using it as an excuse to keep an eye out for Mrs. Coulter. Yeah. So the master then starts to talk to Lyra about Mrs. Coulter. Uh, Lyra says that she's the most wonderful person she's ever met and the master sighs. Yeah. And that makes me think there's something extra going on here that as this like conversation plays out we'll learn a bit more about but the master clearly has some kind of disdain for Miss Coulter that Lyra's not picking up on. There's a weariness about him in a lot of what he's saying. Also it makes Lyra think one day quite soon he'd be buried in the crypt under the oratory and an artist would engrave a picture of his demon on a brass plate for his coffin and her name would share a space with his. So Lyra's like chatting to this guy and then just thinks huh You'll be dead soon. He's going to die soon. Yeah. Rude. (laughs) Absolutely. And it makes me think as well, a lot of stuff in this chapter alludes to her growing up. And Mm. I think learning about death in a way that you actually start to think about it with people in your life is part of growing up and becoming a young adult. That's true. So she's she's seen the master, seen that he's old um, and thought, oh, actually, he's going to die soon. And it's she's really sad. She's kind of, yeah, yeah, it is sad. It's it's that part of growing up though, isn't it? You do realise that. Like when you're a kid, you think that your parents, your grandparents, whoever whoever you live with, whoever's brought you up, you think that they're almighty and they'll be there forever. And then when you start to get older and older, you actually realise actually, yeah. no. That's... You reach a point where you think that everyone over the age of like twenty five is like basically dead anyway. Yeah. Kind of thing as well. You reach that teenage years and you've just got a disdain for everyone and everything. Yeah. Yeah, the master basically explains that he'd been intending to speak to her already, but that things have been moving faster than he thought, or time is further on than he thought. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, kind of explains to her that, you know, you've been safe at Jordan, we're all very fond of you here, you've been as well behaved as you could be, but he explains that there's things going on in the wider world that hit they're out of control of, mm-hmm. and that they can't prevent Lyra from leaving, which is a really odd way of saying get out kind yeah. of thing like yeah. it's a very you can tell that he's very reluctantly giving Lyra this mm. information and that he obviously doesn't want her to have to leave it's but she's kind of just taking she's getting the information that's just like go she's go. like oh, yeah what you want you want me to send me away mm. kind of thing in the first chapter we obviously the first thing that we see of the master is him trying to poison Azrael yeah and then in the second chapter or third I think it was the second we get that conversation between him and the librarian where we realise that actually there's there's more to the story than mm-hmm. him just wanting to kill someone. So we're still in that realm of trying to figure out what the master, like, I suppose, where his loyalties lie. Um, and Lyra's now doing that too. But I think in this paragraph, he kind of gives us the impression that actually he seems like he genuinely cares about Lyra. He wants the best for her. So again, we're going down that route now of, well, what's his motive? Do we still, what do we think of him now? Do we still think that he yeah, is a villain? Yeah, I guess she's probably still a little bit suspicious of yeah. him. And we're getting a lot of descriptors of him, like how he's old and weary. And we've already got this prior information about that conversation where we know that he does care for her and that everything he's done has been in her interest, but she doesn't know that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mm-hmm. that does really, I wonder from Lyra's perspective, if she's still just like mistrusting every word that he says or Yeah. Not. I, I kind of get the feeling that she's try, she's starting to realise now that maybe he's not... I think she says yeah. later in the chapter she's trying to figure out who she should trust and that comes up, but we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah, he kind of explains as well that, you know, your needs are changing. 
um, we can't send you off with some servants. We can't keep teaching you here. You need to learn more about the world. And he makes a very odd comment that I dislike. Lyra, it won't be long, a couple of years at most, before you'll be a young woman and not a child anymore, a young lady. And believe me, you'll find Jordan College a far from easy place to live then. Something about that. Bit creepy. What I would like to think he's saying, you'll be a teenage girl, you'll be a woman, you'll be bored of the scholars, you'll be bored of this life, you'll want to explore the world and you'll want to be have the company of other women. But what it kind of comes off as is being like, you're going to be a young woman soon, surrounded by pervy old scholars and it's not going to be easy for you. I can't help but read that into it. I don't know if it's me being cynical or... If it's just there as like a, a fact of like you're going to be surrounded by pervy old men, well, that's what I'm going to be the place for you. That's what I thought too, and I think the reason why we think that is because of earlier in the chapter when we hear Lyra's disdain for female scholars, and we kind of realise that it's because of the male scholars that she feels that way because that's all she's known. Yeah. So with that information and this, you are more likely to draw that conclusion. I think. So yeah, the master carries on talking to her about needing female company, female guidance. And then there's a really horrible quote about the lady scholars again. again. Yeah. So she says, the word female only suggested female scholars to Lyra and she involuntarily made a face to be exiled from the grandeur of Jordan, the splendour and fame of its scholarship to a dingy brick-built boarding house of a college at the northern end of Oxford with dowdy female scholars who smelt of cabbage and mothballs like those two at dinner. So rude. <laughs> Honestly, she's got beef with these female scholars. But also, she's, like, recognising their circumstances. They're exiled to a corner of the college, to a building that is shit. Mm-hmm. Because they're women. She's not recognising the fault in this situation, or yeah. who's to blame for the reason that the female scholars are in. She's like, ugh, they're in that building and I hate it. Yeah. As if it's their fault they're there, when actually they've been told they can't come into the the grandeur because they're women it's not their fault it's the patriarchy yeah it reminds me a lot of uh, when i was a young teenager and i only had other friends that were guys because i'd been quite badly bullied by girls before that so then i had a disdain for any girl because i assumed that they would be like that to me like Mm -hmm. they would bully me and it's a similar kind of thing she doesn't know any better than what she's learned growing up I was in a situation where I got bullied, so I didn't want to be friends with any girls because I was scared that they were going to be like that. And then she has grown up with the fe- without any female scholars around. She's only seen them and heard what the men have said. So then she immediately assumes that all women yeah. are going to be like that. And I think, again, I know I, I keep saying this, but it's a very kid thing to think. Children are learning things all the time they're little sponges yeah Yeah. exactly they just take in anything and think that it's fact they don't think oh actually that might be that person's agenda that might be that person's agenda they're just like okay i'd be i'm being told this it must be true Mm. although we will we know that lyra is is a clever kid so hopefully she'll break off from that way of thinking yeah uh the the master she's wrinkling her nose at the idea of living with female scholars, Pan's polecat eyes flash red. Mm -hmm. And the master says, but suppose it were Mrs. Coulter. And suddenly Pan's fur changes from brown to white. Imagine having someone attached to you that just gives the game away that easily. But what do you think that means from Pan? Because there's a bit later in the chapter that we'll get to. But I think you could read that a couple of different ways. So you could read it that he's super excited like Lyra is. Mm. Or you could read the opposite, that he's not excited. Oh, okay. Because there's a bit later on, very, at the very end of the chapter, where he says something along, and we'll get there, but he says something along the lines of, no, the master said we should keep it secret from her, and hers in italics. Oh, okay. And it kind of made me... Oh, so me... you think he's almost like white with fear a little bit kind mm-hmm. of vibe? I mean, I think you could read it either way. I don't yeah. know which, which side I fall on in that, but I think it could be read two ways. That's interesting. I hadn't mm. thought of that. I just thought it was like... He just like sprang into his fluffiest, most amenable form mm-hmm. at the thought of living with her. But it definitely makes sense that he could just be changing colour from shock or surprise or suspicion. I think because or... he turns white. Yeah. It's white with, with fear. Yeah. Who knows? Could be read either way. Yeah. Uh, the master kind of explains that she is, because she knows Asriel, she's uh, concerned with Lyra's welfare. 
And then kind of makes the point of explaining that Mrs. Coulter is a widow mm-hmm. and that her husband died in an accident, but don't ask her about it. Yeah. Like, don't be rude and ask her questions about it. Just, this is the facts. Don't prod. Which yeah. is, it's an interesting point that he's, we know that already. It's been yeah. brought up. Like, we don't need to ask, where's Mr. Coulter? We just know she's a widow. She's independent. Yeah. I um, wonder if that will come back at all or if that's just it now. There's a, a sad, a bit of a sad quote about the master after yeah. that section. The master smiled. He smiled so rarely that he was out of practice and anyone watching Lyra wasn't in a state to notice would have said it was a grimace of sadness. It's interesting. I like that. He's kind of saying, oh, the master's out of practice, so that's why his smile doesn't look happy. But actually, I'm thinking it's not that he's out of yeah. practice. It's that he is like, ugh. So this is happening then. Yeah, he's not happy about thing. this situation. It makes me want to learn more about the master and yeah. his background and oh, all especially that kind of stuff. he must care for Lyra a great deal, being as she's been his charge mm-hmm. since she was a baby. Yeah, I want to see a little. Maybe Philip does it in one of his little vignettes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to see a little scene of Lyra when she's that much younger and she is more of a child, and if she does get to interact with the scholars like that. Yeah, and the master, and if they have had those familial moments. Where there is that like care shown. Yeah. They ask Mrs. Coulter in mm-hmm. uh, to double check with her that it's all right. Mrs. Coulter smiles when she comes in and her demon bears his white teeth in a grin of imp-like pleasure. Just that creepy monkey. That creepy monkey. <laughs> He's such a little creep. I don't know what it is. Like all the descriptions of him, especially his imp-like, mm-hmm. carry that like slightly off, slightly sinister vibe with yeah. them. Like even if it's a nice smile, it just calling him like imp-like and it's like baring his teeth yeah he's one of the things that keeps us knowing and i suppose keeps it in the forefront of our brains that actually mrs coulter potentially isn't a nice person yeah i think having the descriptors of the demon doing things like that make you like snap back into oh actually shit she was involved with stealing children they stop you from forgetting yeah yeah and she touches lyra's hair and and lyra lyra blushes You've know she's known her for less than a couple of hours, yeah. and she's totally chill with someone touching her hair. I'd be really weird about it. I would, yeah. but maybe it's because Lyra's not had that affection affection yeah. from a woman. So we learn that uh, Miss uh, that Lyra is going to be Mrs. Coulter's assistant, and that they might have to travel potentially to the north. And obviously, Lyra's very excited. Yeah, about she's that. just she's saying yes to everything. She would yeah. say yes to anything from this woman, hundred percent under her spell. Mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. like where I would put Lyra in this situation. She's just so entranced by her. Yeah. Also, is Lyra going to get paid? Do child labour laws not exist in, in this universe? I guess she gets room and board, right? That's how that works. Oh, God, okay. <laughs> in that day and age. I don't know. I'm thinking of like Downton Abbey kind of thing where yeah. it's like you go off and like your family's just happy they don't have to pay for you anymore. <laughs> they don't have to feed you. So it's basically like getting paid. We learn as well that um, Mrs. Coulter is going to be teaching her all these things. So maths, uh, navigation, uh, geography. I'm interested to see that dynamic between the two of them. Yeah. Um, she wants to buy Lyra new clothes uh, because they'll be visiting important people. Then we find out that she'll literally be leaving the next day. Like, the master sending her off immediately with a random person. What the fuck? From the fact that the master's so reluctant to send her, you kind of get the impression that something bigger is at play here. Like, there's a reason this is all happening so fast. Yeah. I'm sure even if Lyra said no, she didn't want to go with her, she'd probably have had to end up going with her. Mm-hmm. But at least the master might have had more of an argument to not have to send her. But nobody but else going so fast. questions it. Yeah. They're just like, yeah, go off with this woman that you've known for Well, there's no day. one else to question it, really, True. except for maybe the servants that are fond of her, yeah. that actually do the physical looking after of her. Yeah, There's I, no one else around that would have any clout. I'd like to know what the librarian thought of this yeah. because we know that he wasn't keen on the idea of the master poisoning Azrael. Mm-hmm. But we don't hear from him this chapter apart from when we hear that Lyra ignored him. I just wonder what he would have said about it. I don't think he would have been particularly happy that this was happening. Especially in my headcanon that is the master and the librarian being a lovely elderly gay couple that yes. care for Lyra very much as if she's their kid. Yeah. I can see them having discussions about it across the fire in their comfy armchairs where mm-hmm. he's like, why did you bloody well let her go? And then Matt's just like, I didn't have a choice. <laughs> and then they kiss. Oh, <laughs> yay. Oh. 
Lyra goes to sleep, mm-hmm. uh, but Pan won't settle. And I thought that was interesting because I just assumed that if Lyra was asleep or if a person was asleep, then their demon would also be asleep. Mm. I think he's keeping her away. She has to tell him off. Yeah. We're learning about this relationship that people have with their demons. And my assumption would just be that if she's asleep, then Pan's asleep. But yeah. obviously that's not the case. No, and also, yeah, like, it doesn't always have to be harmonious. Like, she can shout at him and he can turn into a hedgehog out of spite. Yeah. Um, which I like. Yeah. Um, then she's shaken awake by Mrs. Lonsdale and told that the master wants to see her immediately. And she needs to tap on his window. So it's all very secretive. She's mm. not going to the door and announcing herself. She's tapping on the master's window. And on her way over there... She kind of takes in the sights of the college, like wonders how much she'll miss them, which is again, I think, a bit of a sign of her, her growing up. Like things are changing for her. She's, it's the first time she's leaving, and she knows she might not come back. Yeah, she's reflecting. Yeah. So she taps on the window. The master lets her in, um, and she says, "Aren't I going after all?" That is exactly what I would have assumed as a kid. If yeah. you're being called to like the person of authorities place and you're so excited about going somewhere i would immediately assume the negative and just be like oh i don't think i'm going anymore i don't yeah, know he must be telling me i'm not allowed to go to disneyland yeah kind of thing. Yeah, yeah exactly and his response is interesting again is the yes i can't prevent it mm. it's more of that sign that he is very is very very reluctantly letting yeah. him go he's trying not to have to yeah i think it even says doesn't it that it's a weird choice of words something yeah. like that and that lyra obviously doesn't notice that because she's just too excited to go yeah and he he tells her that he wants to give her something uh, but she must keep it private he gives her something that is a thin disc of brass and crystal and he tells her that it's called an alethiometer. Mm, it's the first description we get of the alethiometer. But there's a much better one later in the chapter that I'm totally going to read out, even though it's like a page long. <laughs> no, you should. No, yeah, I think I put a sticky note there as well. And I was like, can, I, can we read this whole thing out? Yes, we can. And we mm-hmm. shall. So we find out that it's uh, one of only six that were ever made uh, and she must keep it private. And then he specifically says that Mrs. Coulter can't know about it. Mm-hmm. The six of these things in the world, does Mrs. Coulter know that they exist at all? Like, what yeah. is the re? I know we'll probably find out this as we go along, but what is the reason why Mrs. Coulter can't know about it? Mm. Again, it's one of those things where we know that something bigger... Even if bigger... it's just that he knows that she'd take it off her because it's not a toy for children kind of thing mm. and that they're very valuable and he wants Lyra to be the one that keeps it. Yeah. Because that could be what she could read into it if you wanted to. But also there's a sinister thing of don't tell her. Yeah. And he tells her that it tells the truth. But she'll have to figure out how to use it on her own. And I know that he's in a rush. But I was like, yeah. oh, thanks. Good eh? <laughs> cool, I'll figure it out. <laughs> I think he's just last ditch attempt, just trying to give her something that will help her so that he doesn't feel so guilty about letting her go. Yeah, that's a nice way to, to think about it. He's just like, well, at least I've kind of half given her a chance by giving her this thing that tells the truth. Yeah. It's yeah. And then he tells her to leave before anyone sees her. And he says that... Asriel gave it to the college years ago and he says he might, but then he's cut off by a knock at the door. So we don't find out yeah. what Asriel has got to do with this alethiometer. Through this whole exchange, he like doesn't quite manage to finish a sentence, finish a paragraph mm-hmm. how he wants to. He's not able to give her a full explanation of any of it. And and throughout this bit as well, he has his hands on each side of her head, which I think is a really gentle moment for the two yeah. of them. And when somebody knocks on the door, she feels them tremor. Yeah. So whoever, we can assume that whoever's knocking on that door, the master is scared of them. Yeah. But we don't find out who, who that is and what they want. Or it could even just be a servant warning them to hurry up. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. He, there's a little quote here that's quite nice. That's quick now, child. The powers of this world are very strong. Men and women are moved by tides much fiercer than you can imagine. And they sweep us all up into the current. Go well, Lyra. Bless you, child. Bless you. Keep your own counsel. Which is like, that's the last thing he says to her. I don't know, it's his like final like imparting thing of just pointing out there's bigger things going on here than yeah. you could know. And also only trust yourself. Yes, which is an interesting thing to tell like, a 12-year-old. Yeah. A more subtle way of saying, yeah, you can't necessarily trust anybody around you. Like, yeah. only trust yourself and Pan. So Lyra goes back to her room 
Mrs. Lonsdale won't let her put the alisioiter in the suitcase because she's, she's already closed but it. But like she literally had only just closed it when Lyra walked in. Just fucking open it again. It's so petty, but I love it. It's yeah. definitely like what I'd do if I just closed the suitcase and we were going on holiday and Johnny wanted to put something in. I'd be like, no, I've already closed it now. Gotta You're put too that late. In your hand luggage. <laughs> yeah, or not bring petty. it. <laughs> We've not heard anything about Roger in this chapter. And mm-hmm. then we learn that Lyra, she's completely forgotten about him for this pe- period of time that she's been with Mrs. Coulter. And then she suddenly thinks about him when she's saying bye to all the people, all the, all servants. the servants. Yeah. yeah. I was just like, Lyra by your best friend yeah she does feel guilty it says she feels guilty for not having thought of him even so like you're being told that you have to move away and your one friend in all the world your particular friend is missing Mm -hmm. and you've not thought anything about it which is a change i did appreciate in the tv show yes is that she immediately is asking mrs coulter to help find roger Mm -hmm. and is mentioning roger a lot which i think is a nice addition. It humanises Lyra a little bit more because she yeah. kind of just comes off as a bit selfish having not thought about him for all that time. And the fact for the rest of this chapter as well, she doesn't mention him. She's yeah. she's thought about him again and thought, oh shit, Roger's missing. But then she doesn't mention and him that's to it. Mrs Coulter or anyone else yeah. again. So, cool. Okay, Roger's just gone now, is he? Are we, are we, are we all okay with that? Have you just accepted that fact now? <laughs> He's Good gone. Good He's gone. Yeah. yeah. So they're on their way to London in a Zeppelin. Uh, Miss Col- Miss Coulter tells her all about London and Lyra's really fascinated by it. One of the things at the end of that paragraph is what Mrs Coulter was saying seemed to be accompanied by a scent of grown-upness, something disturbing but enticing at the same time. It was the smell of glamour. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like... I put a note against I that as well. I enjoy that description a lot. Like Disturbing but enticing. Yeah. Does that mean then that Lyra on some level knows that something's off is it just that it's scary because it's so grown up maybe but disturbing is yeah it almost for me kind of points out that like philip maybe isn't a fan of the idea of something being glamorous yeah, as well and like this interesting choice of words that i'm it sure is. you could unpick quite far so they get to mrs colter's flat it's massive very fancy lots of little trinkets everywhere which I wouldn't have, have like, pegged Mrs. Coulter to have that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's very umbridge Yeah, I wrote that down too. Yeah. Oh my I... god. Guys, you have to drink a fucking episode mention of fucking Harry Potter. Because yeah. we just can't We're help just ourselves. We're constantly compare. <laughs> I made a note of... Lyra had seen a great deal of beauty in her short life, but it was the Jordan College beauty, Oxford beauty, grand and stony and masculine. In Jordan College, much was magnificent, but nothing was pretty. In Mrs. Coulter's flat, everything was pretty. And then the way that the rest of the flat is described is like frills and frills mm. and soft and cushions and flowers. And it sounds really, really busy and a little bit suffocating. Yeah, yeah. And like everything's pink in the bathroom, which yeah. I do not like. No, it's everything is, yeah, everything is ultra, ultra, ultra feminine. But yeah, in a way that feels... Either, like, Philip Pullman doesn't know how women who have any kind of sense of glamour would fashion their flat, or it's deliberately overly feminine and, like, deliberately quite suffocating mm. and quite, like, it feels claustrophobic because you know, like, every surface is covered in trinkets. Yeah, and I think... Everything as, that could have frills has frills, yeah. and you're like, oh. I think as well, from what we know of Mrs. Coulter so far, of being this cool presence she knows what she's doing Mm. she knows how to use her charm her wit she is very intriguing it doesn't to me she sounds like a badass exactly and that's not what i would expect someone like that to have in their apartment and maybe it is another way of reminding us that there's something off about her like sickly sweet yeah like umbridge yeah yeah (laughs) lyra has a wash in the bathroom where everything's pink and then pan is imitating mrs Coulter's monkey demon. Yeah, pulling faces. Yeah. Little troll. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I liked that because we knew that demons could be different animals, mm. but this is the first time that we realised that they can actually be a very specific version of an animal. That's true, yeah. They can do impressions. Yeah, so they thing. can imitate yeah. somebody else's demon, and obviously everyone's demon's unique. So they have that ability to look at another demon and, and think, I'm going to imitate you. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that before. Mm. Yeah. And uh, then Lyra pushes him in the in the water because yeah. she's like, hey, which yeah. I think is cute. 
And then she remembers the alethiometer. Uh, she's left it in her coat on a chair. Yeah. Um, and she promised to keep it safe um, and secret from Mrs. Coulter. Oh, yeah. So this is what I was alluding to earlier when we kind of don't know where our loyalty is at the minute. Mm. Um, she says, oh, this was confusing. Uh, Mrs. Coulter was so kind and wise, whereas Lyra had actually seen the master trying to poison Uncle Azrael. Which of them did she owe the most obedience to? Yeah. It's weird that he's chosen obedience instead of allegiance as well. Mm. I don't know. I don't know why. It's just, I guess it's like a child grown up kind of thing. Yeah, she but, is yeah. a kid who her only authority in life has been adults, as as it is really when you're a kid. Mm. So I suppose you would think that rather than allegiance. I think allegiance is more of a adult thing. And yeah, and more of a statement of fr- free will and yeah. more grown up concepts. That makes sense. She doesn't know who to trust more and currently she's got no reason to mistrust Mrs. Coulter other than the master saying keep this safe from her and showing that reluctance to let her leave. Yeah. But it is interesting that she has met Mrs. Coulter and she is obsessed with her. Mm. But she still has that in the back of her mind because she could have easily gone in there and be like Mrs. Coulter look what the master gave me look at this. But she hasn't. So there's clearly still something in her that is saying who who can I trust? Which I think, again, shows how clever she is. Mm. Because she's obsessed with Mrs. Coulter, but she's she still, can still... She can still see other things around that. Yeah. And not be completely enthralled by it. Yeah, she's not 100% under her spell. Yeah. There is an element there that enables her to doubt, which I think is important. Yeah. She rushes out, she's realised that she's left the alethiometer in her coat pocket... And then, of course, it's still there in her coat pocket. Nobody's touched her coat. But she yeah. had that moment of panic, which was induced by her having that inkling of doubt against Mrs. Yeah. Walter. At which point, they go off to the Arctic Institute for dinner, mm-hmm. where Mrs. Coulter waxes lyrical about uh, the different types of liver that you can eat. Because they're eating calves liver and bacon, which sounds disgusting. It fucking does. And she also, <laughs> before that, says that she's one of the only female members. Yeah. Bullshit. Classic. Bullshit. Yeah, so they're eating liver and Mrs. Coulter tells her never to eat bear liver because it's poisoned. And obviously I googled that because I wanted to find yeah, out. It's true, it is, right? Yeah, it's true. But it's interesting because it's polar bears that, are, that have poisonous livers, but in the book it just says bears. Oh, is it just polar bears? I thought it was in general. It might be, but the article bear that I read said bile. polar bear because it also said that seals and walruses yeah. are the same and they're poisonous yeah. to humans. Which is interesting, because I'm pretty sure Mrs. Coulter says something about eating seal's liver. Calf's liver are all right, and so is seal liver. But if you're stuck for food, you mustn't eat bear liver. So she's been eating seal liver when it's poisonous. Oh, Damn unless, it, Coulter. <laughs> unless that article that I read was wrong, but it, it, I, I'm pretty sure it said seals and walruses as well. Uh. But I mean, I googled it and clicked on the first article I found, so, you know. Extensive reason. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's fine. Half the things I've Googled, I've only found Reddit threads about it, which I know not to trust because it's just people doing hearsay. But if it's the only information you can find, you're kind of inclined to be like, slightly more informed is better than completely uninformed. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> at least I never Google stuff, so at least I tried. Good effort. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she goes on to point out all the different fancy men in the room that have done cool things, like balloon flights over the North Pole, and um, points out a guy that's scrailing. Mm-hmm. Um, called Dr. Broken Arrow, who is very much skimmed over, but it's interesting that they're bringing the Skrullings back in because we last heard about them when they were talking about Grumman and the fact that his he- he'd been scalped. Yep. So we get the impression that he's one of the people, like the First Nations people of the area, yep. that has then become ingratiated with the explorers and is respected as much as the explorers, mm-hmm. which is, you know, nice to see, despite all the shitty patriarchy flying around, that at least there's a small amount of ethnic diversity occurring within the room. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Hopefully. You take what you can. You do. That's true. <laughs> um, and after lunch, Mrs. Coulter shows Lyra like some of the things on, display, on display in the Institute from the Explorers. And then Lyra is like, in awe of that again. Yeah, I like this idea of Mrs. Coulter being a really good storyteller. Yeah. Like she's telling Lyra all about her adventures and then all about these artifacts and the stories behind them. And I really, really like that Part of what makes her enticing is that she's a good storyteller. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we haven't really seen that in the film or the TV show. Her lines are all quite short, I found, in the TV shows and stuff. Yeah. We've not had that 
passion for telling stories and yeah. giving information and all this kind of stuff, which actually I think is part of what makes her so enticing and so interesting in the books. And then they go shopping. Yeah, shopping. shopping. Which is something that Lyra has never done before and never picked her own clothes or even thought about what she was wearing. Again, I think, although it obviously points to the fact that Lyra is an orphan and she's been given hand-me-downs for an entire life, mm. her entire life, it also points to the fact that she's also growing up. Because there comes a time when, you, when you're a child that you whether it's by someone showing you like Mrs. Coulter showing Lyra or you just figuring out for yourself that, oh, actually, maybe I do care about what I'm wearing and maybe I do want to It's not just for practicality it. anymore. Yeah. 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 They finish shopping and go home and then Mrs. Coulter washes Lyra's hair in the bath. Mm-hmm. And this whole bit, it's a very short paragraph, but I find it interesting. Mrs. Coulter came into the bathroom to wash Lyra's hair. She didn't rub and scrape like Mrs. Lonsdale either. She was gentle and pantomimed watched with powerful curiosity until Mrs. Coulter looked at him and he knew what she meant and turned away, averting his eyes modestly from these feminine mysteries as the golden monkey was doing. He had never been told to look away from Lyra before. This is so interesting. I get why somebody else's demon would turn away. Yeah. I don't get why your own demon would turn away. I know that... They're literally a part of you. Yes. I know that they're, again, alluding to Lyra growing up and becoming mm. a woman and all that kind of stuff. But even through that, surely your demon would l- still look at you. Like, do you know what I mean? It doesn't matter that she's growing up. Like, it's like you just said, like, Pan is a part of her. Why would that be a thing? Yeah. It doesn't sit well with me. And is it just a Mrs. Coulter thing... Is it a, a it's standard a thing? Thing of like, you know, you reach a time in your life where suddenly it's not a thing where you get bathed with your siblings at the same time to save time. Like, it's part of growing up and part of becoming aware of your body. And it makes sense, yeah, for the monkey demon to turn away. But then, like, I don't know, Mrs. Coulter's looking. Why wouldn't he? He's a part yeah, of her. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah. It would make sense if you were one of the serving staff or like if it was her friend who was a boy who they'd like not previously thought about it before and he became embarrassed by it and they'd look away that makes sense it's making pan turn away is weird right you hit on an interesting point there for my for my understanding i suppose what i would want or i would think would happen is if you trusted that person then if they were looking then their demon would look too yeah if if it, it was like you said someone that you were only acquainted with or you didn't know them then they would the person and the demon would look away yeah, and I don't know if maybe it's a gender thing because it's that differentiate differentiation now of like you're a girl and you're of this age now when boys shouldn't look at you. And it's part of growing up, but it's part of the introduction of shame into your life mm. a little bit as well of like modesty. I don't know. It's really interesting to unpick, and this is the it's the tiniest little paragraph, but I think it says a lot about exactly what age Laura is and exactly kind of where this book is going to end up going I think as well in terms of growing up and those feelings also doesn't Pan need a bath can't you give him a, <laughs> imagine giving him a little shampoo Aww. I mean I guess he'd just turn into something that didn't have fur and then the fur would be clean the next time he changed how does it work with demons bathing oh it's like when we talked about demons pooping yeah do they eat I don't know I haven't we haven't seen a demon eat yet no or poop Mm-mm. or be cleaned I mean, maybe they, like, wash themselves like animals do. Maybe that's not an issue. But I also like the image of Pan with, like, a big pile of shampoo foam on his head. Uh, yeah, she uh, goes to bed in a new jammies, in a nice new bedroom. Mm-hmm. And Pan asks where the alethiometer is. And she gets it from her coat, and they look at it together. He's just like, where's the thing? Where's the thing? Yeah. Aww. Where's the thing? <laughs> and then this is the, the nice quote about it. It was very like a clock or a compass, for there were hands pointing to places around the dial. But instead of hours or the points of a compass, there were several little pictures, each of them painted with extraordinary precision, as if on ivory with the finest and slenderest of sable brush. There was an anchor, an hourglass surmounted by a skull, a bull, a beehive, thirty-six altogether, and there were little knurled winding wheels, and each of them turned one of the three shorter hands which moved around the dials, in a series of smooth, satisfying clicks. The fourth hand was longer and more slender and seemed to be made of a duller metal than the other three. Lyra couldn't control its movement at all and it swung where it wanted to, like a compass needle, except that it didn't settle. 
Well done. And that's the alethiometer. <laughs> it's a really paraphrased. <laughs> it's a really wonderful description. I love it. Because it's a very complicated instrument and that really tells you exactly what it is and what it looks like. Yeah. I don't you think can from, definitely imagine it. Yeah. That. I don't think from that you'd have any trouble imagining what it looks like, which is really great. Um, and also I can imagine as a kid, if somebody gave me that, I would have been like, it's like being given a Game Boy except for cooler because you can see how it works. Yeah. Like I can imagine just holding it and it feels expensive and mm. fancy and mechanical and mysterious and, and like and it's heavy I think yeah. we heard like in this it might have been yeah it must have been this chapter she says that it's heavy heavier than she thought it would be it sounds like a really beautiful instrument from the TV show and from like different bits of like fan art and and I suppose like on the front of my book the copy that I've got is an alethiometer. Yeah, I've got one as well, but it looks. Let's compare our books. It looks a bit different. I've got like a really clear view of the front of the alethiometer, and Faze is kind of on its side in a snowfield. Yeah, and I can a- remember reading this book, and whenever Lyra would look at the alethiometer and the symbols would be mentioned, I'd close my book and look at the cover. I'm oh. very much. If there's a good illustration on the cover, I'll always refer back to it. I really love the illustrations on this one. It's just a great description. And our first look at something that we assume from the cover art, from the length of the description that we were given, that it's going to be quite important in the story. It's a description of an object that sounds expensive Mm -hmm. and very fancy to have been given to a child. Yes. So Especially because there's only six in the world. Yeah, so giving something so important to Lyra, I think this girl might be quite special, guys. Yeah. You know, someone's gifted this incredibly fancy item to her. Yeah. As if it's not as if it's nothing, but like, I don't, I wouldn't trust a 10 year old with some of the really fancy pocket watch. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Which is essentially what it is, but not. (laughs) Yeah. They play with it for a while, kind of try and figure out what it is. Hand turns into a mouse so he can like rest his little paws on it and stare at it while she's messing around, which is really cute. They wonder what the master meant about Asriel, and then they think, do they need to give it to him or do they need to keep it from him? Um, they have no idea what they're supposed to be be doing with it, really. Yeah. Apart from not showing it to Mrs. Coulter. And then this is where Pam says, no, he said we shouldn't show it to her and her is in italics. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but that kind of makes me think that he has some form of slight disdain for her because why wouldn't he say Mrs. Coulter? Why would he say her in italics? Her makes me think he's really putting the emphasis on it. Same like her. No, it was her we had to keep it safe from. Yeah, exactly. There might not be something there, but the way that I read it, I read it as... I wonder if he can read more into her as a person, because as a demon, he can probably read her demon. Mrs. Coulter's Have more of an empathic connection with Mrs. Coulter's demon, Mm -hmm. because like, as a human looking at a monkey, I probably don't necessarily understand all of its like body language and facial expressions yeah. if I've not interacted with many monkeys before yeah. but maybe there's something to do with being a demon that means that you can glean more of the body language of other demons a bit better and he's got a reason to mistrust her because he's suspicious of the monkey in some way that we yeah. don't know about or something yeah. I don't know no I think that's a valid take I'd not thought about that um, literally the moment he's like oh it's her that we shouldn't tell her about mm. mrs coulter knocks on the door and tells lyra to go to bed and she's like all right night but makes sure to hide the alethiometer under her pillow yeah. before she goes to sleep what did you think of this chapter for what is actually quite a petite chapter so the last chapter i counted the pages because i was like oh this will be easy to get through it's only 13 pages compared to the last chapter which was 31 pages yeah right <laughs> And yeah, I had the exact same amount of notes because it's a petite chapter, but there's a lot crammed in there. Mm -hmm. Lyra travels all the way to London, goes out for a fancy dinner, goes clothes shopping, has a bath, thinks all these thoughts. So So much much happens. So much happens. It completely upends the flow of the book. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, we're suddenly taken from everything that we know of the book. Like, her living in Jordan, uh, growing up in the college all her friends, all the scholars, and now suddenly she's in London living with some random woman that she's known yeah. for a day. The only character that we know, that Lyra now knows, that's in the same place as her is, yeah, this random lady. Like, all of this familiar settings, familiar characters that we've spent three chapters getting to know, they're gone. Yeah. Is she going to go back there? Like, are we going to see these characters again? We have no idea. It's almost like the beginning of a new story. Yeah. 
within the book because we're start like you just said we're starting off realistically completely new with these two characters that we know obviously we know a lot about Lyra we know a little bit about Miss Coulter where's it going to go from here and we also know as the reader that not only is Lyra in a strange in the big city with a person she's only known for a day we know that person fucking steals children on the side yeah we know that person is not trustworthy and it's really sinister so like as a place to be you're barely even a tenth of the way into the book suddenly your main character is in a strange place with someone that we know we can't trust yeah my award for this week i'm gonna give it to the female scholars <laughs> so it's the we see you award oh we see you scholars we see you being badass and doing your stuff and being great and we're so sorry that lyra is so mean about you and that you have to go through such patriarchal bullshit and get exiled to a fucking other end of the college and all that shit and we see you still working hard still giving the ladies a good name and, and we don't think you smell like cabbage no <laughs> <laughs> yeah poor scholars Poor female scholars. The rest of the scholars can do one. Yeah, exactly. We've not really met that many characters this mm. chapter, which means I feel like I either have to give my award to Mrs. Coulter, to Lyra, or to one of their demons. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm going to give it to Pan for having suspicion where Lyra doesn't and for seeing that little bit extra. So yep. he's got the like super sleuth award on this one or the like spidey senses award. I, think. I like it. I think yeah. he deserves that, definitely. He deserves the Spidey Senses Award for being a little bit suspicious of that glamorous lady. Absolutely. There you go. That's our Pan. Yay, Pan! Oh, Pan. <laughs> also because he was so cute when he was a mouse. Oh, so cute. Yeah, <laughs> can, we, can we tack on like a cute award as well for his cuteness being yeah. a mouse? So like super cute sleuth award. Yeah, <laughs> super cute Spidey Senses Pan. Yeah. <laughs> Done. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Her Dark Materials. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at HDMPod and you can email us at herdarkmaterialspod at gmail.com And if you want to help us out, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people to find us. I'm Faye and when I'm not talking about Lyra and Pan, I'm probably writing. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Fayley, which is F-A-Y-E-L-E-Y. And if you want to read some of my blog posts, I'm on Medium at Faye.Ducker. I'm Rachel, and when I'm not here chatting to you lovely folks about demons and dust, I'm making designer toys, art and illustrations. You can find me over on Instagram at RachMakes, on Twitter at Rach underscore makes, and over on my online shop, RachMakes.co.uk. A huge thank you to Johnny Knott for his musical stylings and for help with navigating the scary tech stuff. We'll see you in two weeks' time. And don't forget, keep telling stories and all will be well. Bye-bye! Bye! 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 Bye!